Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. On today's show, I'll be playing you an interview I did with Aussie author Diana Reid about her debut novel, Love and Virtue, a punchy page-turner of a book exploring feminism, class, love, envy and the entrenchment of a toxic male-dominated culture in Australian residential colleges, where privilege and power roam, I'd say, pretty unchecked. Um, Eve and Michaela, the two characters, meet at a Sydney college. They are very different people, but both fiercely intelligent. Michaela, the novel's protagonist, is wry, whip-smart, Complex, thoughtful and obliging. She's envious and competitive too. She's not rich and privately educated like the other Sydney kids. Uh, she's on a scholarship and feels lucky, lucky to be included, even if she recognises some of the college culture is kind of gross. Even the other hand is loud and performative. She's unselfconscious, she's self-righteous, her privilege is a bit of a boy. Something she takes for granted. Everybody thinks she's great and she considers her place at the college a natural stepping stone. Michaela is in awe of Eve and they bond over their mutual astuteness and love of philosophy. But from the get-go of this book, we, we know something's going to go pretty awry uh, when the re-emergence of a forgotten drunken sexual encounter between Michaela and someone she couldn't remember rears its head. The dark truths of consent and power are laid bare, exploring shame, agency and ownership, especially of narrative. The friendship drifts, the drifting accelerated by Michaela's secret relationship where power dynamics are explored again. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for chatting with me on Backstory today, Diana. No, not at all. Thank you so much for having me. First things first, can you give us a little synopsis of Love and Virtue? Yes, I can. So Love and Virtue is an Australian campus novel and it looks at sex, power and consent through the eyes of two very different but equally brilliant young women in their first year at university. Well, you you graduated from Sydney Uni in 2019 with a Bachelor of Arts with honours in philosophy and law. And last year you were supposed to be touring a play you co-wrote called 1984 and then COVID hit And then you spent five months ripping up this novel, which is a pretty incredible feat. What made you want to write this book and what made it motivated you to finish it? Oh, well, thank you for, um, I should, I sort of want to qualify the feat and just say that because I wrote it in lockdown, I, and because sort of my plans for the year had been cancelled, I didn't have anything else to do, which is like (laughs) a very privileged position that like a lot of writers go to great lengths to like simulate in normal, in the normal course, um, by like going on retreats or whatever. So yeah. And most people write while they have like jobs and families and it's something to do. So (laughs) there were weird circumstances, but I was very, fortunate for them and they were weirdly conducive to writing. To answer your question, I wrote it. So I I suppose I chose this novel for two reasons. The first was like, I guess, personal. And that was, as you said, I'd only recently graduated from university myself. So even though the book is a work of fiction, it certainly deals with a kind of generation and conversations that I was having when I was at uni and 
I guess, the vibe that I had just recently experienced. <laughs> All of those observations, the kind of social observations in the book were very fresh to me because it was a, a, a social world that I'd only recently left. And then the second reason is, I guess, artistic. And that was just that I really like reading campus novels. So like the Sally Rooney books or um, The Secret History by Donna Tartt or even something like Brideshead Revisited. I just love novels that are set at universities. And um, it's quite a well-established sort of subgenre in the UK and the US, this campus coming-of-age sort of novel. And it just doesn't really exist in the same way in Australia Um, And yet a lot of Australians go to uni. So I guess I sort of saw a gap that um, I could fill. You filled it well. Thank you. It was was such a wonderful ride. I I went to Melbourne Uni um, for my undergrad and I think, and, and everybody I've spoken to about this novel and even in Melbourne has said how relatable it was and how they often had to read it through like their fingers, like, oh no, what's going to happen next? Because we sort of already know. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I've had similar comments both from friends in Melbourne but also interestingly I find from older people and I think that kind of speaks to like even though it's obviously kind of situated very much in my sort of generation, it is I think it's just such a formative time in everyone's life when you're like early adulthood and you do learn a lot and a lot of what you learn is from like mistakes and as you say like you do read it through your fingers because you've been there and you do cringy things that you later regret. And I think that, yeah, it seems like, and I think that's why those novels do have so much potency because everybody's like been young once, you know? <laughs> uh, I think, uh, yeah, we all have kind of made those mistakes, but also like have had to navigate privilege and power in these really massive institutions in different ways. So you really communicated that beautifully. I wondered what your writing process was. Was it different to how you write a play or a musical? Because the dialogue in this book is a driving force. Um, Yeah. Well, thank you. I think it sort of, it is different, but I guess it was informed by my experience with writing scripts. The the biggest difference really is that I um, had never written by myself before. So um, I've only ever co-written Um, I think that's probably really good training because it means that I'm genuinely very open to being edited. Like I, I feel like I need someone else's opinion and I like, um, I kind of crave someone telling me what I'm doing wrong. (laughs) And I think it can be, yeah, I, I sort of do hold very strongly that work is always improved by more eyes. Um, but yeah, so it was, um, the first time I'd written something by myself, Um, And certainly the first time I'd written anything of this length. Um, And I think that it was informed a lot by having written scripts because I think I sort of conceive of scenes often as people talking. Um, Like when I'm plotting um, and I'm thinking of, you know, what can happen next, often I think about it in terms of what conversations people are having. Um, And then when I write those conversations, I do start with the, the dialogue and then I so I write it like a script and then I go back at the end and add, um, like he said, she said, she, I'd flicked her hair or whatever. <laughs> and That's yeah. so cool. Oh, well, thanks. I don't know. It, it's, something, <laughs> it, it's actually something I kind of have to manage because um, the novel's written in the first person. So there are, there have to be long passages of like introspection. Um, and that was something I had to like force myself to do. Um, and I, 
had to, it, it was harder. Like if I was writing a bit where the main character was having an epiphany or whatever, it, it came <laughs> a lot harder. It was harder to write than if she was just talking to someone. You went to college in Sydney. Does this book take from that experience at all? So, yes, it does, but um, I guess sort of up to a point. So I um, did go to a college in Sydney and I drew a lot on that environment and its kind of social norms and values and also just, um, I guess, locations and settings. But I the book is a work of fiction and my biographical details are not those of the narrator or anyone else in the book really um and none of the none of the people in the book are, are based on real people and the events in the book haven't happened so um yeah so it's kind of it I sort of I would describe it as a book that I probably wouldn't have been able to write or not in as much detail had I not been to a college but it's certainly not a memoir or really a piece of autofiction. I see. So it's sort of just like, you know, as if you've travelled or been to a really beautiful part of the world or to a part of Australia that you might not have been able to write about had you not just been there contextually. Um, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and obviously my experience as a college did inform the book and probably, um, you know, meant that I was interested in writing about that. But, yeah, I think that anyone who'd been to a college probably could have written a similar thing. You know, like it's not based on any real events or whatever. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Diana, I love the relationship between Michaela and her mum, how Michaela is perceptive enough to see her mum giving her space, reading her, reading and waiting to listen or be there when she needs, but knowing it takes time. It's especially lovely in light of her dad's death when she was young. Can you tell me where this relationship came from and why you chose to write it? Yeah, for sure. There's um, a couple of things. So I suppose um, his, having just said it's not autobiographical, um, it is an autobiographical and um, both of my parents are alive, but I think my, like, general attitude to mothers is reflected in the book which is that I have a great relationship with my mum and I love my mum very much um, and I think, I think mums are great um, <laughs> hell yeah mums so, yeah we love mums and so I think that that probably it does come through in the book because as you say Michaela's mum is a sort of um hands-off but nonetheless quite formative presence in her life um I sort of I um that came about for a couple of reasons so one is that um, I wanted Michaela's father to be dead because she has a um, she has a, I guess a, a sexual interest in older male figures, mm. um, and I sort of thought that was like an easy psychological way to justify that interest because if anyone like found it surprising that she wanted to have sex with men who were quite a bit older than her, then um, I, I guess like a quick Freudian analysis would tell you that she's like searching for a replacement father figure. Mm. Or like to put it reductively, she's got daddy issues. Um, but then I also knew that I wanted this narrator to be um, very confident um, and I wanted her to be, um, despite the fact that she's young and she's impressionable and she's not super sure of herself, I think she is quite sort of socially adroit. Like she um, is quite extroverted and she um, can ingratiate herself in a lot of different social sets um, and that's kind of important for the plot of the book. She, she needs to be someone who is able to make people like her. Um, so I sort of thought, well, to give her that confidence, then she needs to have had 
um, basically like a pretty stable upbringing. Um, And so from that came this mother figure who's kind of imbued her with this sense of self-worth that like enables her to go forth into this new space. And despite feeling like a bit of a fish out of water, she still manages to navigate herself quite well and make a lot of friends and whatever. Yeah, she does. She's friends with all the girls at college at the same time as being friends with Eve, who isn't. She wants to set herself apart. Eve is such a difficult character for me. As I read Love and Virtue, I felt simultaneously excruciated by her and also so impressed by her confidence and her intellect. Who informed this character you wrote? Oh, well, thank you for saying that. That's definitely what I wanted people to feel. (laughs) Um, And I guess that's sort of how the narrator feels. I think that Eve is... um, yeah, it's interesting. I think, like, like all of the characters, she's informed partly by um, sort of types of people I've come across either in my personal life or I've sort of seen from a distance in the media. Um, and then she's also, I think that um, there's a lot of me in both Michaela and Eve, and I think that perhaps Eve is, like, the worst parts of myself <laughs> and, um, like, the parts of myself that I'm sort of conscious of keeping in check. Um, so for example, Eve is quite a, um, she's quite a performative person and she loves attention and she's got a lot of tickets on herself. Mm. And I think that like anyone who like sits down to write a whole novel (laughs) um, probably likes attention, whether they can admit to that or not. I just don't think that's something that you do (laughs) unless you want some attention. I I wondered, um, you know, also what the decision was behind having the characters meet through or meet or kind of become friends through a morals and ethics class in philosophy. Was that a bit of irony given how often the wealthy are exempt from the laws the rest of us have to abide by? Yeah, so that was something that I guess I kind of, that was kind of inspired by my own experiences of studying philosophy. Again, it's not a work of fiction, but I do the same degree as the characters. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, it is a work of fiction. It's not a biography. That's what I meant to say. Um, (laughs) I yeah so I think one thing that really struck me when I was studying philosophy especially as I got to the end of my degree was that I felt like I had engaged a lot with these ideas around what it meant to be a good person um, but I still was no better at enacting it in my real life and I also saw that in a lot of um, in a lot of people who also studied philosophy or um, even I guess professors or famous philosophers that sort of having this academic knowledge and thinking a lot about what it means to be good doesn't necessarily equip you to enact it in your personal life. Um, And that's not to say that the people I studied with or learnt from were particularly bad people. It's just that, like, none of them were saints, you know. And, um, yeah, and so I think that what I wanted to explore in the book was this idea that um, there is this um, separation between academic knowledge and, like, practical moral knowledge Um, And Eve is a character who has a fantastic intellectual grasp of really complex ideas around um, what ethics are and and she has quite firm beliefs in what's right and wrong, but then she can treat the people in her own life really badly. Yeah, it's it's like, you know, you communicate well that life is full of grey areas. I guess my other point on that is that I think that there is... um, I think that in current discourse, especially on social media, we do kind of conflate 
having a really good grasp of basically like quite complex academic ideas with being a good person. And I think that we can sometimes sort of criticise people for not understanding um, like really dense theory and um, we criticise them as if they're like less than or even evil. Um, And I just don't think that that, uh, yeah, I think that's like a, I don't think we should conflate those things is what I'm saying. I think friendship is full of grey areas. What is it to you, especially in the context of this novel? Um, So I think that what this novel kind of teases out is the idea that I think that when you are younger, especially when you're in a brand new environment, like going to university for the first time, I think that a lot of your friends can be essentially friends of convenience. Um, So they're people who you just happen to um, end up with because circumstances have thrown you together. And then the process of growing up is kind of like teasing out who among them are going to be real friends and who are just, I guess, passing through. Um, And I think that the... Um, what I, I suppose it's such a hard question, mm. isn't it? It's really difficult to answer. But I think that probably what makes a, a true friend is someone who um, sees you for exactly who you are and including your flaws and loves you nonetheless and also doesn't have an interest in using you um, to fit their own purpose. So I'll give two examples from the book. One is that I think Michaela uses Eve as kind of an example um, of the kind of person she would like to be and then she also uses her as a competitor at times. So this is the narrator looking at this girl and saying, oh, I want to be with friends with her because if I'm friends with her then I can be more like her. Um, And then by contrast she's got a friend called Balthazar, which is a stupid name. They all acknowledge that that's a stupid name. Um, And he kind of... um, he loves Michaela, but he doesn't ever want anything from her. Um, and I think that he's sort of, to my mind, he's the example of a good friend in the book because he doesn't want to use Michaela to make him feel better about himself or to um, project a kind of image of himself. He just wants what's best for her and um, kind of, yeah, doesn't really give much regard to what she can do for him. And to my mind, that's friendship. And that's really rare and um, really hard to find. I love when Michaela realises that in the book. It's a very heartwarming moment. Diana, what did it feel like to read Helen Garner's praise of this novel as, as I quote, an absolute cracker, love and virtue lobs right into the current moment with clarifying light, end quote, knowing she wrote one of the most infamous and controversial campus novels ever in Australia, The First Stone. Um, Yeah, so there's sort of a a story behind that quote. Um, It was not unsolicited. Um, So I I read The First Stone um, at the start of last year and I was definitely very influenced by it when I was writing Love and Virtue. And I wrote Helen Garner this like long handwritten letter that was just super sycophantic. And um, it, it actually, it was sycophantic, but it was also kind of precocious. I told her that I didn't agree with everything in the first time, <laughs> um, which is like a bit, I don't know why I did that in hindsight, but um, it's true. Anyway, I told her that. But then I also said that I like, respected it so much and it you know it made me think and um I thought that her willingness to kind of explore gray areas and her insistence that gray areas do exist um I guess sort of empowered me to do that in my own book um and anyway so I wrote her this very sophanic letter and then she (laughs) replied and um said that she would read Love and Virtue 
And then after she read it, she wrote me another letter, um, which contained the quote that you just read out. And I like was shaking when I opened <laughs> it and then I wept when I read it. And yeah, I love Helen Garner. And that was a hugely, um, yeah, it was, it was an amazing moment. I hope I remember it for a very long time. I felt incredibly happy. I can't believe that happened to you. That is incredible. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it really, it really is crazy. Like, cause I, I didn't, I, I genuinely didn't think the book would be published. And so it's, it is insane that this book I read over a year ago that like got me thinking about all these ideas and inspired me to write my own book has now ended up as like, I guess a dialogue between me and that person who I like was just in complete admiration and awe of. So yeah, it's crazy. (laughs) It's amazing. And there are some really cutting lines in this book, like this quote, if the most privileged thing a rich young person can do is despise and disguise their wealth, then this was the aesthetic lottery equivalent. And that was when Eve shaved her head. Um, And that made me think of Helen Garner. Did you feel as if you were sort of channeling her when you were writing those hilarious sort of cutting lines I don't think I was conscious of it like at the line level um I do think that something that um is a sort of constant thread in Helen Garner's work is that she is um she as you point out she does say very cutting things but I think she's always very good at kind of positioning herself in the firing line um and that's something that I think when you write fiction can be harder because I think maybe it reads as if I, Diana Reid, and being really judgmental of everybody else, whereas um, I think perhaps people underestimate how much, like, self-criticism is contained in a book like that. You know, it's not necessarily me saying cutting things about everyone except me. Like, I'm also included in that. Um, But, yeah, I think that you're right. I think that she does, um, she is cutting, and um, I'm sure that um, I think perhaps having read her work, it, it maybe unconsciously gave me, like, permission to be cutting <laughs> and sort of think that, like, yeah, like, it's okay, people will get over it they might even appreciate the insight. Did you ever, did you have to give anyone a heads up that you went to uni with, like, I'm, re- I'm writing this novel, um, it's not about you? Like, did you have to let, did you have to let anyone know? <laughs> um, that's a good question. I, you know, I think um, because it is fiction, I think that people were um, pretty good about knowing that it wasn't about them. I think that um, one thing that's been kind of nice is that um, that character I mentioned earlier, who's sort of the example of a good friend, Balthazar, um, at the risk of like tooting my own horn because I made him up. He's quite funny. Um, (laughs) And a lot of people are, um, I've had several people kind of put their hand up to say that they were the inspiration for him. Um, And I've been, I guess, like parties where people have kind of quibbled over like, I'm Balthazar. No, I'm Balthazar. Um, so that's been a positive aspect of that experience. It's like, it's nice when people want to identify with the character. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I wanted to ask you about your favourite books on friendship. There's, I don't know, when I was reading about Michaela and Eve, it made me think of Eleanor Ferrante's characters, Leela and Eleanor, in the Neapolitan novels. So, yeah, what are your favourite books about friends? Um, that's such a good question, and you're, um, that's also very, um, ins- yes, you're spot on. That's very insightful. Um, I, I did certainly think about um, Eleanor Franti's novels, um, so the first of which is called My Brilliant Friend. Um, that's actually the only one I've read, but <laughs> I did love it. 
Um, and then the other um, the other novel that's kind of similar in theme is called Swing Time by Zadie Smith. And what both of those novels share is that they look at a formative friendship between two young women that um, doesn't necessarily last and also um, is not like is not uncomplicated. Um, both of them kind of deal with the toxicity of female friendships and how um, a lot of the um, competitiveness that drives women to be better is also based in a desire to like be better than each other or to you know cut the other woman down. Um, and so I think that definitely both of those books definitely informed um, love and virtue. I also, I'm trying to think what else. Um, I also think that Brideshead Revisited is a canon- it's quite a canonical book about friendship at that particular age. And I guess the, a big takeaway from that book regarding friendship is that they don't necessarily have to last in order to have a very lasting impact on you as a person, um, which is also kind of played out in Love and Virtue. Mm. What do you want people to take away from reading Love and Virtue? I would like... Um, so, uh, well, at a sort of very lofty kind of self-important level, <laughs> I would like people to um, rethink situations that they previously thought were black and white um, and maybe even revise some of their moral judgments. But at a more um, basic level, I, you know, it is a work of fiction and um, fiction is always in part entertainment. So I would like people to find it funny and turn the pages and, um, you know, get invested in the characters and maybe even like some of them. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a real bloody page turner. Um, oh, thank you. That's great. Well, uh, that's, that's the aim amongst other things. <laughs> uh, what's on the cards for your future projects? So I'm working on another book at the moment. So I was very fortunate the publisher that um, bought Love and Virtue also bought a second book. Um, so, yeah, I've been working on that. Can you give us anything about it or is it, is it a secret still? Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not very good at um, it's not so much that it's a secret in that I'm not allowed to say anything. It's more that I'm not particularly good at articulating it because it's still very nascent. But um, it is um, not a sequel. It's a, a different novel but um, also contemporary fiction, also set in Sydney, also about young people but not university oh I cannot wait I cannot wait for it oh thank you (laughs) (laughs) no worries Diana thank you so much for talking with me today not at all thank you so much for having me I had a great time if anything we discussed in this conversation has brought up difficult things for you you can call lifeline on 131114 and beyond blue on 1300 224631 independently yours triple r 102.7 Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. Twitter.